0: Just a very brief introduction, uh, just to thank Rav Lepiansky for making his time available. He's really surrendered his program to us this last week, uh, literally whatever we wanted to put into his program. He's been so um, amicable to just uh, dispensing of his Torah and his wisdom. Uh, Rav Lepiansky's real koyas well, that's not uh, correct to say, but one of Rav Lepiansky's tremendous koyah is to distill to uh, the Torah Hashkofer, uh, what is our viewpoint on on, on a, our outlook to life, before one can actually start doing life, one has to understand what's the basics of our outlook. The Moshe we thought of is like, if your computer has a virus in the in the program, so then some of the programs don't work. But if the operating system has a virus, then all the programs don't work. So our hashkoffa and our outlook on life is really what underlies everything <coughs> that we do, I and mean, certainly no, no more significant area than in Chinuch, to have that underpinnings of the Hashkoff of what exactly it's about. So. Again, to
1: thank you, and to ask you to share some words with us. Um, one of my favorite topics to speak about when I'm not home is Chinuch, because whenever you speak publicly, the assumption is that the speaker knows it all and is accomplished, and the audience needs to hear his wisdom. So if I speak about Yerushalayim, the given assumptions, I'm the Yerish your poor folks are not, and I will teach you how. When you speak about Chinuch, you're into a problem, because you have your kids running around, and everybody knows the kids, and whatever you say about Chinuch, they sort of um, put it to question. But when you come to an audience that doesn't know you or your children, you can sort of pontificate and, you know, and pretend you know it all, and that's great. I actually want to speak about an aspect of Chinuch maybe even... I guess maybe it wasn't anticipated, or maybe it wasn't what you had in mind. It's, it's, it's more about the foundation for religious chinuch. And we keep talking about how to explain to children, what to tell our children, what to do with our children, and so on and so forth. And that seems to be the, um, the give and take about chinuch and so on. I, I would like to look at it from another angle. There's Ramban. It was not last week's said This week said, however, he one us us Hanan. And the Ramban says, um, there's a question, there's a pasuk that says, so on, You have to be very careful not to forget what you saw at Sinai. So the Ramban says, he argues with Rashis Pshat, he says we need to constantly refresh our mitzvah of Maimon Har, uh, the, our memory of Maimar Sinai. olam. Um, teach your children, grandchildren about it. And he says the reason is because Maimon HaSinai was our anchor Temuna. Nothing else, even if Moshe Rabbeinu would have come down and told us, as much as we trust Moshe and think he's telling the truth, there's still always room for doubt. But when we were there and nobody else was with us, then um, we will be able to refute anyone who argues with us and we know clearly that we saw the truth and he's lying, so too, when we teach it to our children, they'll know it's true, undoubtedly so, because we wouldn't teach our children a lie and we wouldn't give them a legacy, an empty legacy that is of no value. And they'll never doubt it. That is what Jarban says. I have many, many, many questions, millions of questions, because a generation ago, two generations ago, three generations ago, children rejected everything their parents had taught them. Um, So what happened? I mean, the the Ramban says this emphatically. He puts this down as an emphatic reality, that children will not, um, if you tell them something, they will trust you, and they recognize that you're not willing to give them a legacy that's empty and so on and so forth. So... How do we explain it? I mean, and, and it's not as if in Ramban's generation everything was perfect. In Ramban's generation, there were many people that that uh, became goyim. You know, there it was a. Um, a I mean, the the, the the statistics of how many people converted in Spain and Portugal and the, and the Iberian peninsula, peninsula in those and of his years, but onwards, there are estimates of forty percent of the Jews. It was a, it was it was an assimilation. They, you know for many 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 different kufis it was kind of good and life was good and there was a lot of opportunity and people um converted so Rabban himself had a talmud who became a a, a guy um, at least one one that we know one that he writes about so what are we talking about? what does that mean and let's let's um let's take it a step further let's look at his internal logic the first generation lived Har Sinai okay. The second one heard it, and let's assume that it was true, okay. But the grandson, great grandson, like, like whenever you speak about a to people, and you run this argument by them that six hundred thousand people couldn't be mistaken, and there was more than six hundred thousand, a million, and everyone saw it, and they wouldn't say that, and the person, and anybody who is a little bit astute says that's great, but I'm only hearing it from one person. I didn't, I didn't meet six hundred people that actually were there. I didn't meet anyone that was there. So we're back to square one again. And this Ramban feels, the Ramban is putting this down as a very, very important mitzvah. It's the basis for Amunah. That's what Ramban is saying. Mm-hmm. So how do we understand it? It's something that really, really um, needs to be dealt with because by the Ramban's um, saying, this is the foundation of Amunah and so on. So I want to discuss this a bit and, and, and understand what he's trying to say and understand um, the point that he's making because it's really a, it's a, it's a very fundamental point and it goes to the heart of human cognizance. We're under the mistaken impression that rational people will argue something in a sort of rational way. We sit down, we, we debate something, we, we prove it, we disprove it, um, sort of this the, the this scientific myth of, you know, hypothesis, proof, disproof, and this and that, and that's how we act, and that's what we believe, and that's what we think, and so on and so forth. It's not at all uh, true. It's not at all how it works. Um, when somebody tells us this doesn't make any sense, L- let's go back to something Aristotle said, a very, very telling point. He said try and convince, I think it was Carthagians, I don't, I don't remember who it was, to bury their parents, and they will be horrified. And try to convince an Athenian to eat his parents, and they will be mortified. And each one thinks the other one is crazy. Um, these are two human beings, two bright people, two good people, and each one thinks that the other one is horrendous. How does that happen? What happens? So... We don't our mind doesn't is not empty and sort of has these a uh, uh, purely you know you can hypothesize x and then bring proofs and so on and so forth that 's not how human reason works it works very differently you the mind works in certain layers and whenever you have a a, a lower layer being questioned. When you're trying to put a layer on top of something that's there before, um, it has to fit. In other words, let's take an example in science. And this is elementary in terms of logic. Every system of logic requires a series of axioms as the foundation. And then, um, for instance, a scientist is not... A blank slate. A scientist knows that if A causes B, it'll always cause B, or else A is not what's causing B. That's an axiom, and you, 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 he doesn't. You can't prove that. You either accept it because we're hardwired like that, or you don't accept it. But you can't prove that. Now, when somebody comes along and says, you know. Sometimes sugar dissolves in water, sometimes not. Depends on whatever mood the sugar was that day. Then we say, no, there's no such thing. Either water dissolves sugar or doesn't. I had somebody, there's a, there's a doctor, a very proper doctor who in the shiva with us in the mornings, and uh, the hot water was broken, whatever. So I told him, you can put it in the uh, microwave, and about two minutes or so, it'll be boiling. So he said, Rabbi Lopiansky, that's very unscientific. It's not. About two minutes. You, you could have it down to an exact science. I said, but the Shiva's microwave is a very unscientific microwave. It has moods, and sometimes it wants to boil the water quickly, and sometimes not. It, it's, it's, the, that's, it's just not scientific. So it, we, we, when we have axioms, and it may be argued that some of those axioms are hardwired, the idea that if A causes B, then A must cause B, and only A can cause B, and so on, those are things that, let's assume we're hardwired, and that's a first layer. Then there are experiential um, items. In other words, things that I personally experience are reality to me. If I walk outside and someone tells me it's raining, I will doubt that the other person is sane because it's ra- I don't feel any rain, I don't see any rain, and I will, be, I will accept personal experience over anyone else. It's a halacha. The halacha says if a, two witnesses are absolute proof in halacha. And if let's say you have two witnesses versus a hundred witnesses, it's a stalemate because there is no adding witnesses does not increase credibility. However, if Besden sees something with their own eyes, it, it has a halachic term, it's called Baharic Baraglav. Uh, two witnesses came along and said so and so has died. And so and so inconveniently shows up a half hour later. So don't say, well, we have two witnesses, so there's nothing as good as the witness, then, then, then it's, it's a, we're in doubt. The, the answer is experiential trumps witness. Experiential is reality to us. Witnesses are a report of reality. So in my layer of acceptance of truth, I start, let's assume, with a hardwiring. We'll, we'll assume that there are certain axioms, and then I layer on it experience and only afterwards do i deal with uh, reports testimony um, and stuff like that one more piece that that's part of that same layering process and that is age and Akadosh Baruch who created us in a way that at a certain age our minds are forming a, a, an image of what reality is. Um, and it's, it's an age of, let's say, up to seven, eight, even maybe further. The, the child accepts things, this is a reality. I once heard in, in, in consonance with that, a pshat by a, a, a from psychologist many years ago, who said something I thought was really, really on, on target. He said the following, um, it says in Chazal, that ch- little children should start by learning Vayikra. And Chazal say, let the pure ones come and learn things of purity. v'yisasku So this person explained it as follows. And in Yerushalayim, in many Hadarim, or maybe in the also, the minig actually is, they learn like a parish of Vayikra, and then they go to bracious. But, you know, just sort of to, to be in line with the Chazal. And um, so this person explained it as follows. There is an age when developmentally, the child is absorbing information about what constitutes reality. And then he, he builds on top of that. And that's why, by the way, the, 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 in America, I know it's a big thing to teach little kids like a three and four year old to ask why, why, why? Because that opens their mind, it doesn't close their mind. I'm not a professional. I think it's stupid because a child that age when he asks why is just being annoying. He doesn't. He doesn't have. He doesn't have the ability to relate. The, he doesn't have the ability to relate X to Y. You know, Not I mean the pun. He doesn't have the ability to do that. He's absorbing information. And, and at some later point it, like when Chazal say learn Gemara, that means there's a, there's a questioning process based on what I know to be true till now this statement doesn't stand, does stand, whatever it is it, it's, it's, it's a stage yes of course a person who goes through life just having been programmed as a robot but there's an age for input of information so he said as follows Vayikra deals with basically Chukim, Carbonus, Kashris tumantara. All of these items need to be accepted as reality. You don't, I mean, a a child who will, by us, will try to eat with sticks. We will tell him, no, Tatl, you eat with a fork. Why? Because people, polite people, eat only with a fork and knife. A a Chinese bubby will tell her child, don't you dare eat with all this machinery. Uh, A a well-mannered, polite child eats with two sticks. And that becomes his reality. And that's normal. And yes, as an adult, he might understand that in other cultures do it differently, but he will have a very hard time with it. So there is an age in the strata of our um, understanding things and, and how we accept them. Things that come in at a young age are reality to us compared to what happens later. And in consonance with that, since our parents are our strongest um, elements of reality, our parents are us this is this is you know this is what we are and who we are their um, their understandings th- what they tell us becomes w- w- reality for us so we have a f- the following um, we have the the following um, analysis people build up their sense of true and false not on an even playing field but rather layers and a layer that needs that's coming on top of something is going to have to deal with the layer underneath it and if it's not in consonance it will it will buck it will not sit well so that means whatever we've been hardwired with whatever we've personally experienced and that's why if somebody had a very bad experience with somebody from, let's say, all the, all the excuses in the world are going to be lame, it's going to be difficult. What went in at an early age and what our parents told us, but we'll, we'll, we'll qualify that very soon. So we have four items that really form a sort of the bottom layer of our cognizance. And everything comes afterwards, we're going to measure up the yardstick is that previous layer. Now, let's turn to our parents. Um, A a young child just absorbs everything, but as he gets older, he begins, and even as a young age, he has a sense of things, but he begins slowly to distinguish different messages. For instance, if his father says, everybody thinks so-and-so, everybody says so-and-so. So he picks up, in, even subconsciously, he doesn't know it, but he says everybody says so. Um, let's give another example. If you are mechanic your child, you, you you sit down and try to say, young man, it is very important to eat spinach and to go to museums. But you drink beer and you go to ball games. So the child... He believes it he believes that it, that it's great to drink beer and go to ball games and to tell your children to eat spinach and go to museums he'll do the same thing when he becomes an adult he, he will l- live life the way he likes to and tell his kids what they ought to do he, he's because he, that's what he understood his father really would like his kids to do that and he be, be able being that he could do what he wants so he does that I was once, (laughs) my my youngest son, being is not here, we can talk about him. He's he's already grown man, he's 28, he's normally unheard, don't touch on his own. Um, He was once laying on the couch reading at Shabbos at the table. And um, I came to him and said, You know, know, Mitzvah Shem, someday soon you're going to have a home of your own. How are you going to run a Shabbos dish? He said, I know how to run a Shabbos dish. I'll be sitting up front. My kid will be laying on the couch with a book. And I'll tell them, my dear son, how are you going to run your home? That's exactly how to run a, a Shabbos table. Um, so the, 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 um, the child picks up what is reality to the parents and what is an ideal it ought to be. In other words, things that are very real to him, um, I absorb as reality. Things, uh, a story that my father tells me about his own life, I don't doubt. I, I, I never doubt that. I, I mean, my own personal. Life. I mean, a- anyone. A father says, you know, I, I roughed it really, really. Three years I was in the army. And it was very tough, and I really think the sergeant was mean. I think this was that, and that. I swallowed because, because I feel when a father tells a child personal experience, um, it's real. It, it's not even, it's not so to me of MS. It's because I want my son to share those feelings. And it's me. When I tell them something that I heard, that I heard from someone else, that I believe to be true, that I would like to be true, then it is not in the same category. Maybe in a very early yes, but then as it goes on, it, it diminishes. I, I, wanna, I want to. Um, I want to. I, I want to give a sort of um, experiential proof. Like, you know, it's not scientific, but I, I want to point out to something. The the strong Hasidic chinuch, you know, of, the, of yesteryear was tough. And, you know, the parents were tough and Rebbeim were tough. And it, it obviously created many problems. And for many reasons, many children rejected it. Um, I know, um, you know, my, own, my mother's family, um, they came from Poland. My grandfather's Hasidic, his children, most of them rejected it. It was a very hard life, and for many reasons to, you know, why they sort of, but so many, there were so many things that were baked in that they really felt right. Um, like, they could admire a rav. They would, they would reject a reform rabbi. They didn't have no patience for religion. But a rav of a certain type, they would feel instinctively drawn to, even if they had it out. There were certain things about a Shabbos table. There there was many things that that they had in their blood. And the reason was because it was real to the parents. The parents weren't trying to – they may have tried to knock it into the kids, but that wasn't what did it. What did it was their own sense of right and wrong. And you you find people like that, of that generation, that have the most – the most ridiculous contradictions in their actions. There are certain things they wouldn't do, and there are certain things that, that absolutely no way, and certain things you have to do. And it was baked into them because it was baked in as reality. Their parents really felt that way. They, they, it was to them as real as the table. It wasn't the words they told them. It wasn't anything like that. It was the sense of reality. And that state, they didn't pass it on to their children, so their children w- w- were off. But their own sense—I had, you know—I have an uncle who's um, not is uh, well man anymore. He's an older man, but he lives in Brazil. And he w- he rebelled at a very young age, and he was completely gone. He he did as they would say, called a But he was in my house a few years ago. He came to visit, and he was so positive about so many things of. Uh, and, and so many of the ideas and and terms and and, and values, I was amazed because I know I don't know well, but I just remembered that he he had been uh, considered a, a terrible, terrible, you know, off the derrick and and it was there. It was there because it spoke his essentiality. You know, this is what you do, and this is what you don't do, and those things stayed. So. Um, w- whenever we talk about laying a basis for a Muna and yiddishkeit, I once spoke to a boy that was—he came to our yeshiva, a brilliant boy, very smart, and, and he did want learning, but he had many issues, and you know, I wasn't sure he would—he would remain in the fold or would, or, or, or would remain in, in in civilized in 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 in, in uh, societies, you know, and. So at some point, things just snapped to place, and he um, and he became a highly performing mentor, A really amazing. Uh, he's married again with a few kids. And I asked him once, Akiva, tell me, um, you know, I know what you were up to. What happened? And I said, you know, at some point, what your home is snaps into place. And yes, I was a kid. I was a wild kid. I was a daring kid. I did things I shouldn't have done. But when... When it matured, that's time to place because it's real, because this is what my parents are. So if we ask ourselves what is um, the basis for our child's um, religious acceptance, amuna, and so on, it's who we are. And it's not going to necessarily reflect itself in in, in the years of growing up. And that's its own passion. It needs its own hadracha from people who are competent to know what to do and how to do and so on. And and it's a struggle. Every child finds his own self in a different way. But if you want to ask yourself, what will make Yiddishkeit his default setting or her default setting? The answer is the reality the child goes up with. That puts a terrible burden on us. Uh, Maybe, uh, thank God, but it puts a burden on us as follows. If our focus is, what do we tell our child? What do we teach our child? How are we mechanic our child? Then we already start at the wrong point. And it's, it's worse, because a certain sense, we take on a certain aura of, I'm doing this because I need to be mechanich my child because I'm embarrassed that my child should be different, Um, and so on. It's somewhere, when you have that preachy tone of voice, and that kind of, you must do this, you shouldn't do this, we do that, and that, and that, and so on and so forth, it's somewhere along the line a child detects, this is the spinach of museum speech. This is what I'm going to tell my children, but that's not really. And, you know, and a child... Knows and understands <laughs> children pick up every nuance um, of behavior, and you know it's, at some point they 're kind of not uh, sophisticated enough to figure it out, but they figure it out when they become sophisticated enough, they have it down to a T. The things that we are, the, things, the experiences they have and how they size us up as what we are, that stays with them as reality. And even if they bucket, the the question is on their behavior, not on what was. Yes, this is my father, and this is right. I've drifted away. He has at least his bearing straight. And that's why that piece is critical. So let's take some examples. Um, Let's take a Shabbos table. So first of all, certain things um, like, let, let's give an example. Let's say um, you, you do not speak about certain things at the Shabbos table. And to me, that's a lot better. It's a lot way before what you do speak about is what you don't speak about. So let's say it's a family, type of family where discussing sports would be normal and talking about other things would be normal. Then, and Shabbos, you don't. Then that registers. And it's not fake because it's what you're not doing. It registers with child Shabbos is different. Shabbos sports is not the day of Shabbos, and if you if a child starts talking, and you say you know, at, at, at my Shabbos day we don't talk about sports. Sports is something that I that I feel is not Shabbosic. More than you ought not, and if and, and at some point if a person learns if, if a person sort of disengages moves away from that those things at some point it does become not Um If you don't talk about people. Um, at, at a table. Well, let's say that minimally at a Shabbos table. Um, so, and a child says, and, and you'd say, you know, I don't talk about people on Shabbos. It's it's, 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 a, it's a day that's Kedusha. It's not a time when I ought to be. I, or if you tell a child, I wouldn't like it if someone spoke about me. It's a much, it's more sincere and a child realizes that you see it as reality. So, So, those are things. For instance, if a child sees you if, if a child is told that he must do his lessons, he must learn, he shouldn't waste any time, okay that's what parents are paid for, to tell the children. If he sees you staggering after a hard day of work and you, you have this thing about taking a safer for 10 minutes minimally and he, and he tells he you, how come you, you're falling asleep on it? he well, say, you know what, I, I feel like a guy if I, don't, if I don't learn something before I go to sleep. I can't do it. It's something to me that... Will impress a child, and he may not do it for a while, but it 's his default setting and and when he stops pulling, this is where he snaps back to. If he sees a father learning, if he sees whatever it is that he sees the father doing and it 's a little rough and, and, and that 's why um, people um, and that 's why children a lot of times their their religious figures, the mother because the mother works hard is sincere. And sacrificing, and you can't. You know, fathers can be accused maybe of being a little bit hypocrites. Mothers very, very hard to accuse, and and a child doesn't do it, and then he senses reality. I mean, he can brush it aside and saying it's a woman's thing, but 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 they, they, he can't the sincerity of it. Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says so. Rabbi says that a mother's input in Avastora Torah is more important than a father because the nature of the way she relates to, to the child and to the, and to the and stuff like that, and so on. Um, so, the, the the so what the Ramban's point is. So, so let's go to Ramban and let's. The Ramban is saying, one, that experience and an experiential um, a, a, a religion trumps any argument and any logic and any sway. I may do an avera, but I'll know where the truth is because I experienced it. The and this it leads us to a second point. If the child experiences positive religious experiences, and that's important, it's important to tailor, it's more important, it's not the Dvar Torah that it says over, per se. It's how you receive it, and you, and you compliment him in a genuine way. It's the fact that Shabbos is a pleasant day filled with pleasant activities. and um, All of that association those experiences of Yiddishkeit that are positive to child a reason why children who do well in in yeshiva like to learn and children like to learn do well and they like to learn is because there's a very positive pleasant experience learning is pleasant I'm told you're wonderful I'm made to feel good and so on if a child's religious activities are in a positive pleasant setting then it's good I once heard a devastating criticism from Rabbi Akhf Kamenetsky. I heard about. Um, he was once walking with someone else in Williamsburg. They, he used to live in Williamsburg, Tardas used to be in Williamsburg, and Satma was there. And the Satma Rebbe's, and Satma Rebbe's, um, big, one of his big days of avodas Hashem was Hashanah Rabbah. My father actually once took me to see it. It, it was, he would daven Hashem and Rabbah for the Ahmed. He would daven all day long till about. 10 minutes before the Shkia. And a Shkia is quite late. It's like a good hour after hour Shkia. And he would daven them there. And then they would run home quickly and eat something and then come back for a coffee and so on. And it was amazing. I mean, he stood on his feet. He was an elderly person. His feet were not, he wasn't healthy. And he did it with, with tremendous energy. And he spoke. and was. It was a production that really was very, very powerful. And, you know, people were, I mean, that's my father, was a real fact, but he still took me to see it because it was something that was very, very special. And he, um, and Rabbi Yaakov, and this walked by. someone the other person remarked, look how wonderful it is. And Rabbi Yaakov had this, <laughs> under his nose, like, voice, he said, and where are the women and kids? Bored out of their minds, starving and hungry, and really upset. That's where the reform movement starts. In other words, if their yontif is not pleasant, Uh, You know, speaking to a kid about how spiritually uplifting it is when he's miserable and hungry and tired is is not going to reinforce it. It needs to be a day that's pleasant. And it takes some thinking about what's the environment that the child can feel Kedusha Shabbos, what the pleasantness of Shabbos, and and everything with it. Um, because, Because that becomes to him his experiential Judaism. If a person... In, if if a, If a person takes a child for a walk and my father's kind of Racha was a Holocaust survivor, my father had a family and a wife and children in Europe. he was Kavna, he lost them in the war. he came out after the war. He was an older person. he must have been about fifty when I was born, and maybe even more and um, he, he was an extraordinary father, and my most pleasant experiences. I mean, it was just very, very pleasant. I mean, the, the homegrown up was extraordinarily pleasant. He was a very calm, quiet, pleasant, thoughtful person. And But one of the things we would do, we would go for walks. Like on a winter night, he would take me and, you know, wrap me up in a coat. And we'd, he'd hold my hand, and me and my brother. And we'd go for a walk. And we'd discuss people that he had seen, gedolim, situations he would lived through, many, many things like that. He shared a world with me. They, they, they were not preachy. But they were his real feelings, and they were usually very positive. I mean, he, he you know, he, they, he, he, he didn't, it wasn't nonsense, but it was positive experiences. And, and there's nothing in the world that could shake that. It's, it was the most pleasant, you know, being with my father together and walking together, which was very pleasant, and talking about things that he shared with me. He shared his world. A person who had a struggle to get to Mitzvah observance, sharing it with a child at appropriate age and is, is, is marvelous. The child feels it. If you tell him how difficult it was to keep a Shabbos and it took a long time to appreciate it, now you appreciate it, then it's worth more than a thousand Mitzvah that, and that are not you. And, and those things the child sets reality. And even if he has his own challenges, but when he matures and things settle down, that's what he settles down to. So, the Ramban is telling us two pieces over here. First of all, the, the experiential versus the, the, um, the, the, the testimony. And second, parental input versus anyone else. And therefore, if my father um, lived through something, so my father's war memories are mine because he experienced it and he gave it over to me as a father to a child. Um, uh, So yes, we can go back now to Har Sinai, but the core of my religious, um, what shall I call it, attachment is not anything i ever heard. It's watching my father say tillum, uh, watching my father hold a thousand fill under his arm, the way he held the in, Tefillin, it was with love. Just, and it wasn't a production. He was a Litvak. It, but it was there. The way he kissed the Gemara when he put it back. All of those things were genuine. They were real. And this is my earliest memories. And this is my earliest sense of things. And, and yes, I may have done better. I may have done worse. I may have you know, had my challenges. But at the end of the day, this is my core. So it takes a lot of thought to find our religious selves. So some things can be done, even if you're not holding there, what you don't talk about at the table, um, even, even if you're not holding there, not talking is not fake. You just didn't talk about it. And doing things that take some effort from your part and being consistent and not turning it into, my dear young man, learn from me. It, it's kind of, you do it for yourself, and the child sees it. The child picks up on it. Um, if somebody knocks on the door, and, you know, it's, I don't know, here, you can't knock on doors like they do in Israel and America, but, you know, if somebody come and knock on the door, and, um, you know, if, if, if you at some point make a remark, it, it, you know, the kid picks up on it. But you have to be genuine. If you say, you know, I'm not in the mood, but that person probably has a – he's probably certainly not in the mood to be knocking on doors. I'm not in the mood to answer a door, but I have money to give. He is knocking on a door, and he's certainly not in the mood to have knocked on the 30th door tonight. Um, You know, being genuine is important. If a child knows it's tough for you to get up in the middle of supper after a long day and get up is fine, so long as you're able to give him why it is important – and instead of making some remark about who sent them here, who told them to come, whatever it is, you say, you know, it must be harder for him still, and you know, I need to learn to appreciate other people. If it's genuine, the child will absorb something. So I guess to sort of sum up the point about this chinuch and son, we're talking about chinuch specifically for religion and and um, for religious attachment, or for, for for forming the religious essence of a child of any or of any person. The two points, the the Ramban, first of all, in the big picture, he's enlightening us, that people don't, it's not a level playing field for arguments back and forth. It's a process of, of, of certain core layers versus more external layers. The two things Ramban has identified as being most critical for building a solid anchor and foundation for Amuna is experiential and early on, infusion specifically from a parent. Those form the core of what we really, really think is real. And those are areas that we need to focus on. So we're taking off. Instead of what wonderful messages to tell our children, the question is what behaviors should become our behaviors and what activities can we make for the kids that... They have religious experiences, and positive religious experiences, um, and religious experiences that come. And yes, you have to recognize a child may not, on you know, for him a positive experience comes with candies, whatever it is, and and stuff like that. But but it those are the type of things that stay with him. Whatever is genuinely genuine by you, and and it's sometimes more important not to say something that you really are not holding by than to say something because it's important to say it. It it, it does not have its effect if it's not you, and worse, that it's used a lot of times as sort of a, a lever to pry away other things. Yeah, I know. He, I, I think he really believes that this way ought to be, but it's not like that. You know, and, and a child may not be able to articulate it, but as time goes on, he's able to... Um, you know, I once heard a child tell her mother, so tell me, this week these forks are flasheks or milchiks? <laughs> like, like the mother was obviously not that careful or she was kind of forgetful, and she made some comment about what is it this week. That, that, that's, that's not healthy because the, the child will keep cashless, but it's not with the milchiks and flesh or mix-up. I, 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 I once heard something. Um, I'll finish with this. left a very fascinating impression on me. I was in a, um, in a bookstore in Yoshalayim. and this bookstore was a religious bookstore. The owner was a real Yerushalmi who had become very modern. He was clean-shaven. He had been a rabbi in a community somewhere else, and um, the books that he sold were mostly English. This was before every bookstore carried English books. He sold English books. He sold books that were a little bit modern. You know, that was, that was his thing. It was in the Gula area, and I once went in to buy something. And there was a man there who had bought something exotic. I don't remember what it was. I, I came in the middle of the conversation. This other person was carrying on with shitas nashkofus that I assume was sort of kfir, not I, kfir, because I didn't catch enough of it, but I, I got the sense this person was hacking away with his stuff. And he was hoping to find a sympathetic ear with um, by this uh, bookkeeper, because he was also kind of modern, very clean-shaven, and, you know, he'd been educated and so on. This person looked like he had enough, and he said, I want to tell you something. When I was a young boy, I lived in Bate Ungarn, which, for those of you in your slime know, those are, it's like in Meir It's It's the heart of Meir It's where many of the of the character live, tiny, small uh, um, apartments. This was the first apartments built out of the old city, basically, and this is, this is the heart of what you'd say in the Torah character, or, or however you want to describe it. And he began to wander off the derech. And for a Shalami kid, off the derech was, he began reading Morun Avuchim. That's the Ramam's guide to perplexed. <laughs> now, the problem was, there were no libraries. You couldn't download uh, the Morun Avuchim. There wasn't a place where you could sit in the Beis Medish and read of Avuchim and, and come out alive. It wasn't. So he got himself more of him, and he would read it under the covers in his bed. It, the privacy is not a commodity in your There's no such thing as privacy. His mother noticed that there's something going on under the bed. She said, what's going on? He, he said, I'm reading. She said, what is it exactly reading under the covers? She was a simple Yoshalmi woman, a, a real Yoshalmi mother, and he said, it's, it's a safer by the Rambam. So she said, you know, the Rambam's forum, you can learn it by Smedvesh. You don't need to read it under, under the covers. She said, well, it's a different, it's a different type of safer. It's, it's helping me grapple with how do we know there's a God. And she looked very puzzled. And she said, you need a Rambam for that? You would have asked me, I would have told you. And he told over the story, you know, it was funny, but basically his point was, there are some things that are obvious and true, and no amount of draying will dray you out of it. That was the way he said over that. That was his flavor. Basically, you know, I've had my journey. I've seen, and I've heard, and I've thought, and I'm a bit more modern, but basics are basics, and a mother knows that, and you don't need to wander off and, and come up with all sorts of fancy pshatim. And what I saw was that with all of his, you know, sophisticated thing so on there was something in that real Amunabai's mother who said it with the full sincerity and simplicity of a believing mother that it stuck with him and he may understand it differently but but that's a core of his We'll finish one more uh, there's somebody a brilliant boy who escaped from Hungary he didn't escape he, he came after the war he was a very famous he is a, a very famous person I can't say the name and he studied Chaim Balin Yeshiva for a while and he was an off-the-charts genius and he ended up in JTS which is a conservative seminary and he was a very noted professor for many years. He retired and he moved he was I think he was observant all the years but he taught JTS and his shitas were kind of very academic. He retired near Shalayim, and he basically moved into Haredi neighborhood and became Haredi and he basically just blended into Haredi society. And someone asked him I don't get it. Like, what happened? He said, at some point in life, you have to choose if your heart is the people you study with or you daven with. And I've decided it's the people I daven with. It's the same example. In other words, at a deep layer of the person, there was there's a core sense. I may not know the explanation. I may have kashas. I, I, I may have arguments this way, that way. But reality is an Elohim sitting and davening. That, to me, is real, and that's Emes. And building that type of MS means um, you yourself build in things that are real to you. You yourself give your child experiences that are Yiddish and positive. And the closer it is to reality, the closer it is to who you are. And the more it comes with experience instead of speaking, um, the more it'll become bedrock to the child. And Bez Hashem, that's the foundation of everything else. If we have a good foundation and the right foundation, then with Seat Hashem, we build weiter. Okay. Yes? Are there experiences that one shelters one's children from? In other words,
0: the experiences that one does share need to be shared with authenticity. Yeah. Are there experiences, does that mean that one keeps them everything, one's entire experience? What What is held back?
1: Well, um, yes. Uh, 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 what, uh, give me a little more of a sense of, of what type of things you're referring to. I
0: mean that theory you mentioned about the Holocaust survivor or something like that yeah. where there is I mean, different different experiences that are sometimes kept in and not given to the child.
1: I, I just, it's something a little more...
0: Uh, it's a selective, it, a, selective, um, a selective demonstration to the child of the things that are real for me. Or is it my entire... Uh,
1: you don't have to expose your weaknesses. There's no, no mitzvah to tell the child, you know, I'm always late for davening and so on and so forth. It, it, you know, it's, uh, the child will figure it out. <laughs> so, you know, there's the story. Somebody came to Reb Leib and and he's like all excited. He says, you know, I have this little three-year-old boy and all of a sudden he started making motions and putting out film. Like, what does it mean? He says, it means you should start going to Minya more often. <laughs> you know, there's, so there's no, there's no mitzvah to, to to tell a child your weaknesses, no, we just to expose yourself. Um, but the, but and and that's also proper. There's nothing wrong with just like publicly you. Being honest doesn't mean you tell everybody what your problems are, but being honest means you don't you don't pretend to be something you're not. And copy a child things that are real are real, and you know. And as a child grows, you can you can talk about certain struggles. But again, there's no. A child may not be able to handle uh, um, a father saying that I just can't do this or can't do that. And that's, there's no reason to, uh, to include a child in that. Yes?
0: Uh, if you're a I mean, like your children, I think that like, you had fun before, and like, now you become a bachelor, I mean, I mean you, you, should you share experiences that, you know, where you were a bachelor?
1: Of- so uh, depending on the maturity, let's, let's take an example. If, to tell a child that it was terrible and it wasn't fun and it wasn't great, maybe it wasn't, but I, that's, that may not be yeah. the case. But but if you honestly, if you want to put yourself in words, honestly, what happened? You can say, you know, we fooled around and we had a lot of fun. But then I look back and I said to myself, I wasted all these years. I, I, you know, it's it's like what do I have for it? And and I wished I would have been able to apply myself. in Nosson Sevi, my late brother-in-law Demir he grew up in a very modern background, Americans' modern background in Chicago, and when groups of boys would come and he was a Shiva, he would ask boys um, how many of them are from Chicago and how many of them played on the basketball team, and he asked them if it's fun, and they would say yes, and he would say, I also played on the team, and it is fun, but it's a lot more enjoyable to do what I'm doing. Try it. You know, he didn't tell them it was terrible, and uh, he, he, he it, yes, it, it's, it was enjoyable activities, but I really, you know, and, and you can, at a time when a child understands, a child may not understand the search for kite when he's 5 or 10, but at some point he does understand, and, and you tell him, you know, I really had a sense that, what am I here for? I could do what I want to do, but what am I doing it for? You, you can share it in a positive way, and, it, and, and it's you, and, and um, I think that that's very, very positive. Yes? Rabbis don't get to ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> Rabbis answer questions. They don't, they don't. Yes. It applies to teachers as well. Sharing your genuine self with with a student, in other words, the best. The best mussar years have told me, I, it was something. You know, when I started learning, it was a struggle because I really didn't enjoy it. And it took me a year, but once I broke that ice, I really began to enjoy it. That, to me, was so much more motivating than the person that says, how can you reject Torah? It's the sweetest, best thing in the world. It, it, it's a lot more effective when I really felt that the person was sharing himself or, you know, if, if a person... So being genuine is important. And, yes, you have to. you obviously have to... And recognize what it is that you want to share. What does he want to share? But it has to be genuine, and it has to. The kid, the, the boy, has to have experiences. To tell him Torah is sweet is a sales pitch. To have him learn something specific that he can enjoy, and you see, the day you see a Talmud's eyes light up when he understood a Kasha or, or, or a Teretz, he's there. That's the day that he that he is. So you have to a lot of times use your imagination. It's it's sometimes a student who's that as so bright, you need to find a type of kasha that he could that he could work through. But when he does that, when he has that positive experience, when he felt it, that's that that is he has a point of reference and that's that makes it. Yes. You know what? It, it's, it's like asking what's the reason for illness. There are so many reasons. It, it's not, it, it, it took, it's like asking what makes a person sick. Being sick means the, one of a, a million pieces out of place. For some children, it's because they haven't had positive experiences. The, the, they were not academically gifted, the, 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 the classroom setting didn't work for them, and they drifted off. Some kids don't have the patience to sit. And, and the type of way to school that didn't work. Some have very demanding parents, and they just couldn't handle the pressure. Some have very permissive parents. In
0: the same
1: it, there's no such thing as the same family. I once heard from a big mechanic in two kids who are in the same position in two different families are more alike than two kids in the same family. The oldest in two families are very alike. The youngest are very alike. The middle child is very like the only boy is very like the only girl is very like. There's no such thing as the same family. It's it's and and sometimes it's worse. If, if let's say you have a family of people that are very bright and one child is average or vice versa. It, it, sometimes parents had a child at a time was difficult and this child sort of grows up with irritation. It, it's there, there was no no two beings lived the same life. I I once said oh. When my father kind of passed away 20-some-odd years ago, my brother and myself set a Hespit on him. And I you know, just saw he was brought to Israel, and we're living in it. So um, we both said it back to back. We, every word we both of us said was 100% true. You could have sworn we're talking about two different people. And it had to do with our own nature. I spoke about my father's poetic... Emotional side, my brother spoke about his integrity and structure, and it was a reflection of our different personalities and and we had the same father and we both drew from him and The truth is, I recognized that side it's just that the other side spoke a little more to me, and he recognized the other side, but we're different and I kind spoke made every person different and in being in the same family there was there's some overarching resemblance but um, not, uh, you know, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't mean anything. No no two children had the same experience, even at the same family. Um, you know, I, I think of my own children. My oldest child, we never went anywhere, ever. We never stepped out of an hour's travel time. My youngest never got off an airplane. She, at, at that, she, she, she was almost born on an airplane because at that time I started commuting and my wife was going and she was going and they were going. Two people got in the same family and... and their set of experiences is is two different uh, worlds. You know genes give us some sort of predisposition, but we all have different genes. We all occupy a different place in the family and uh, okay good. Yeah.